I first met Sanya Nishita several years ago at an event at Harvard about how to be a minister. She's an internationally acclaimed physician and world-leading health expert. In 2018, she was appointed to the cabinet in Pakistan by the Prime Minister Imran Khan. Her task was to lead for the government on poverty alleviation and the creation of a comprehensive welfare state. She founded ESAS, the largest social protection programme in the country's history and perhaps the most advanced in the entire world. In this episode, Sanya speaks to me about Ezaz and how she went about building it. Sanya Nishtar, you were, until recently, in charge of a huge, ambitious, bold, anti-poverty strategy for the whole of the country of Pakistan. When you were appointed to that role... What was your ambition for it? What did you hope to achieve? The new government has just come into power. One of their election pledges was to create a welfare state. And I was brought in basically to structure the policy, the strategy, and to lead its implementation. It was a huge task. As you know, Pakistan is a country of around 220 million individuals. Poverty is very pervasive. If you look at the multidimensional poverty metric, Uh, 38% of the population of this fifth largest country in the world falls under the multidimensional poverty line. So it was quite a challenging task. So I proceeded to do things in a strategic fashion because there's a tendency within the government, you know, to put things in a quick and dirty way. And I was given a short timeline. I was asked to produce something in 10 days. And I said, if we want something holistic, evidence-based. You need to give me time to plan it out. And as I remember, you um, you had boards with lots of sticky notes on that you carried around the Prime Minister's office. Is that right? After a couple of days, the person who was assigned to write the minutes just gave up. He said, there are just too many meetings. There's, there's a large <laughs> yeah. meeting every day. So I conceptually kind of started piecing things together on on a large blackboard with colored sticky notes. So that was the foundational text of SRS, and slowly things started making sense. Presumably you were doing that consultation partly to get the programme as good as possible, but also to build a coalition across government behind your agenda, because it, it affected nearly every minister on the cabinet, didn't it? Exactly. It was partly to develop the vision for the poverty alleviation programme and then to develop the first five-year strategy and to give it metrics and, you know, translate it into a log frame. But as you very rightly said, part of the reason why I was having those consultations was also to create awareness about what the government's intent was, what the prime minister was supporting, and and also to bring a critical mass of individuals who would then come behind this for the sake of execution and implementation and for supporting it, because we had a lot of uh, civil society actors come to the table. We had a lot of stakeholders come to these consultations as well, who then got involved in one way or the other. The consultations served very many purposes. Can you just describe what the elements of that program was? Because this wasn't just about transfers of cash, which are common in anti-poverty programs. You had a much bigger vision that this would not just 
provide people with cash to support them through difficult times. It would also provide a ladder of opportunity out of poverty. Can you just describe the elements of your ESAS programme? So there are various ways to slice the cake, so as to speak, and various ways of uh, describing the different components. You can describe them by the target audience, uh, the ultra poor, the those who wanted um, a support for livelihood generation, you know, disadvantaged students, those who required support for healthcare, farmers, uh, the informal sector, so on and so forth. So that's one way of cutting the cake. The other way of cutting the cake is thematically. So there were interventions that are human capital uh, that made investments in human capital. There were other in- interventions that uh, were core social protection. There were others that are livelihood. So in terms of the interventions that were aimed at supporting individuals, we were looking at a number of cash transfer initiatives. There were unconditional cash transfer initiatives and two buckets of conditional cash transfer initiatives. Then there were two programs that focused on graduating individuals out of poverty through access to cash for work. And then the third category were care services. So these were either orphanages or homes for the elderly or homes for the informal labor or the soup kitchens. One aspect of it, which you haven't mentioned, but is implied in what you've said so far, was, was that you needed, because of the history in Pakistan, to tackle what you called elite capture What did you mean by that? Yes, that's a very important component. So what I've described so far was actually the implementation engine of SRS. These were programs. These were things that you could, where benefits were being accrued. But then there were a whole host of interventions which were in the SRS framework. These were not programs as such, but these were actions policy actions which were meant to be taken by other ministries to make governance pro poor and to hedge against elite capture of social protection resources. Because the history before Azaz and all the way through the 70-so years of, of Pakistan is that a relatively small elite have captured the state, the bulk of the income, and left many millions of people in poverty. And your argument was... It's not just about the programs. You have to tackle that history if you're going to solve this problem. In the SAS framework, one of the pillars was focused on addressing elite capture through the policies that were the mandate of other ministries to execute. One example of that is that if there are market committees and one of the SAS objectives was to ensure participation of those below a certain poverty score within those market committees, then that was a way to dilute elite capture. And there were different examples of that from the anti-poverty lens. But within the operations of social protection, one of the major contributions of SAS was to address elite capture by making our operations more rule-based, Yes. Uh, By making the selection of beneficiaries centered on data-based targeting rather than based on political expediency. You did fundamental reforms of governance, appointing officials who were the best people for the job, building a board that actually functioned and held people to account, tackling abuses of the conditional cash transfers and so on. You put in place an entirely new professional 
form of governance for the whole programme, which is still in place uh, and is one of your big achievements. What were the key elements of that governance reform? So there were many elements of that governance reform, starting with how boards functioned. I mean, you have to know the Pakistani context very well. There was a conscious effort to undermine systems and processes so that maximum discretion could be exercised. That's that's the top line of it. So there was a tendency not to make a policy for the range of areas so that decision-making could be arbitrary. There was a tendency not to call, call board meetings so that one or two people at the helm of affairs could do whatever they wanted to. There was a tendency not to make a board subcommittee on audit uh, because they didn't want anybody to look at records. There was a tendency not to have an HR committee because they wanted to hire according to their own will. And there was a tendency not to have a board finance committee because they wanted to use the budgets as they wanted and then get ex post facto approval. So one of the first things I did was I said board meetings will happen every three months. Every board committee will uh, will hammer out the agenda. Every board member has to sign conflict of interest statements and has to reaffirm the position with respect to that conflict of interest statement every time. Whistleblowing cases would be brought to the board every time. Uh, error, fraud and corruption would be a regular agenda on the, on the board. I strengthened the internal audit department. One of the major investments I did was in internal audit. I appointed an integrity officer. I equipped internal audit because we run digital operations in most of the programs. So I, I made sure they had access to the best tools and the best HR you and I talked about this being a shift from the politics of patronage to the politics of performance and the focus on actually doing the job of effective governance. Yes, but a few other things I'd like to add to my previous list. You know, there was a shocking, yes, shocking tendency to leave the IT systems insecure so that if you wanted to change beneficiaries lists, you could do that. So one of the major reform done was to secure the IT system. Then I aggressively worked on separation of powers, transparency. I said everything has to be up in the open on electronic dashboards. So there were a whole host of things that were done in the governance domain. And I think, Michael, the most important thing is that you have to set an example yourself. That is critically important. And in our system... Most of the abuse happens when you have your, for lack of a better expression, your own people around you. So, you know, people who are habitually in the habit of doing institutionalized corruption will go to a ministry, take their own personal assistant, take their own accountant, take their own six people and the operate as a group. So when I went, I said, I called the HR person and I said, look, give me a PA, give me, you know, a staff officer. And he was really shocked. He says, are you not bringing people with you? I said, no. I want people working with me who I don't know from Adam. The HR placements and the transparency in the HR placements is absolutely critical to the integrity. Yes. This is obviously relevant to your work in Pakistan, but there'll be many parts of the world where this same rigorous, thoughtful, transparent approach to governance and tackling abuses will be fundamental. So I think people will be very interested in not only that you did these things, but the very positive impact it had. You know, the, the use of data analytics and the and, and the transparency yeah. around that and the 
Uh, and I would tell my staff, even if you make a mistake, that's fine. We will defend the mistake, but do not hide facts. I think one of the most important things is that you, you should not make the first mistake. You should not make the first compromise. Because if you make the first compromise, then it's a slippery slope all the way down. So I recall, and you know, I worked in a political setup. And in a political setup, there is a way of doing things in the social protection ministry. The social protection ministry in a political government is a tool of political patronage. And from day one, I clamped down on that. And I said, I am going to run everything according to rules and procedures and have rule-based selection of people who are going to be benefited. And those rules may have their shortcomings but I'm not going to open any door for any political interference. Now, that got me into a lot of trouble also because there were constantly people going and complaining to the prime minister that this woman is not opening the door for us to take benefits. She's against us. But the prime minister was very committed to doing things the right way. And he, he supported me in these decisions. Then a time came when the same people who criticized me would come to me and say, look, we asked you for favors and you did not do them for us. But then we watched you. We saw that you were not doing it for anybody else also. Now, the other thing you did that I was very impressed with throughout this program, and you were constantly referring to it, was field visits. You didn't sit in Islamabad, did you? You were often out in rural areas, urban areas, seeing what poverty was like at the front line, helping women who were uh, often being deprived of the benefits they're entitled to by odd processes at the front line. Talk about how how important those field visits were for you. The field visits were were a very important part of the reform process because what you're told on paper and what you uh, what you were, what you're actually told sitting in your office is very different from what you see on the field so i would frequently go in disguise you know just go pretend to be yeah. a beneficiary stand in a line uh, get a feel of what's happening and then come back and tell colleagues look this is what i saw i remember going on one of the field visits i stood in a line in an uh, where where our beneficiaries were taking out their money in front of an ATM. And I watched for half an hour. And I came back and told them, I said, look, the ATM treats our beneficiaries in a very different way. And it treats a regular customer in a, in a very different way. There are different algorithms and hops that have been put in place for our beneficiaries. And for a good two months, the partner bank did not believe me until they went themselves in the field and then they came back and said, well, you were absolutely right. There is a glitch and the, 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 we can fix the glitch. There, there are hundreds of examples of things that I picked out just because I was there in the field. So this whole, you know, in, in our theory, we talk about evidence to policy. And of course, evidence to policy operates at every level, but when you are doing operations, uh, the evidence to policy link comes best from the field. I can continue to yeah. give you examples. For instance, when we ran a SaaS emergency cash during COVID, when we reached out to 15 million families, which means 100 million people, 
and disbursed one uh, more than 1.25 billion in cash to these families at a very dire moment. I was out in the field on a daily basis, and it was so humbling, Michael. I remember the first day when I announced. I told them, I said, "Look, we are doing this thing for the first time in the country. It's a massive operation. We will encounter." problems on a daily basis and i will be there with you to help overcome them the first day when i went into to a congregation of laborers who were out of a job because the city was in lockdown and i said how many of you have heard about asas emergency cash 100% of them raised their hand and and we were receiving requests through an sms so i said how many of you have uh, smsed only half of them raised their hands and then one of them came and whispered in my ear he says look i don't know how to sms i can only hear i can only take a phone i don't know how to sms and i recall standing there i made public announcements on television i said abina i need volunteers to come and help then somebody else told me the next day we can't sms because we don't have balance in our phones so then i went to uh, you know the telecom operators and the regulator and asked that that sms should be made free then on a couple of days later the retailers went on strike and said look you are making us disburse money and you're levying a tax on our commission it's a very difficult environment we can't work so i went to it's a long story but ultimately i got their tax waived but had i just sat in my office so that so the report of asas emergency cash outlines all the measures that were taken as a result of real time evaluation just because i made a choice to be in the field i meet many people in many governments around the world who never leave the office in the capital city and yet your story shows absolutely perfectly how until you see for yourself it's very hard to be sure that you're getting implementation right for all the individuals who are meant to be benefiting i think it's a wonderful example i know throughout this you are very passionate about benefiting obviously everybody in poverty but particularly women and girls could you just talk about some of the programs that you adapted or implemented specifically for women and girls because if you get them out of poverty it's good for whole families well one of the things we did michael earlier on was to uh, approve a policy called the 50% plus for women and girls which meant that at least 50% of the benefits in any program in asas would accrue to women and girls ultimately it turned out to be 98% uh, by the time i left office but we started with a 50% plus policy now there were there were some very important steps that we took the first was that it is not just a policy pronouncement but that in every program we will embed this through metrics a mechanism to track and accountability So in the delivery unit of SAS which of course you are deeply familiar with we would uh, for at every steering committee meeting i would ask the scholarship committee and the and the the loans committee and the asset giving away committee uh, what is the, what percentage of women have benefited uh, and inevitably i would have this ask well the 50% the rule is very hard can you bring it down to 35% and every time i would say a no and there would be accountability accountability for them to deliver on this and because we we were inflexible on this and because they knew they would 
they would be held to account, they would go out of their way to make sure that they advertise to female students and to female workers and to female recipients of loans. The second thing we did, and there was, you know, a lot of skepticism. As I told you, we ran these two very large programs Uh, the Esas Nashinama, which was a health and nutrition conditional cash transfer program and the school stipend initiative. So earlier on, I announced that the stipend will be weighted in favor of the girl child. Now, this was a very important and a very transformative signal in very conservative societies where the female girl child is not even counted. So I worked as a physician. I worked in a in a filter clinic, in a hospital where we had to ask a woman twice how many children she had. The first time she would only mention the male children. And then you had to ask her, no, but how many girls you have? She says, oh, I have three girls also. So she actually had seven children, but she would mention just the four boys. And in that society, a government goes and announces that if you bring a girl to this uh, nutrition center, you will get more money for support. And it was very well received. Could you just tell me one or two stories of lives transformed? I mean, there are so many moving stories of this little amount of money making a very transformative difference in people's lives. The education conditional cash transfers, girls that would never go to school, going to school, whose mothers would take them out of school and who would be relegated to a life of um, being totally illiterate, being able to study because of her SARS stipends. I mean, our care services, such touching stories there, because in Pakistan, there was, for the last 70 years, the informal labor was a blind spot. You know, individuals coming from the north of the country, from all these far-flung areas coming to cosmopolitan cities, and all this, these informal laborers, daily wage laborers, would see, sleep in verandas of shops, pay the equivalent of 10 rupees, which is a few pennies, and sleep in verandas out in the cold. And we started on the prime minister's directives making shelter homes for them. These are like one-star bread and breakfast facilities. So imagine a laborer who would have to cull out half the money from his daily wage to barely subsist and have one meal a day and sleeping out in the cold, having a warm bed and a good breakfast and a good meal completely free. Fantastic. I mean, you really have to see it. I mean, we put put these soup kitchens and these soup kitchens we put in places where there's a need for soup kitchens. You know, there are places where very poor people congregate in bus stands and out of outside of railway stations and hospitals and and industrial areas. And the dilemma for these daily wage workers is that they have to, if they if they earn one pound a day, they have to send half of it home and use the rest of it for their own subsistence. And when they're able to go to these soup kitchens and, and eat for free, it's a very liberating experience. You finished your role in setting up Hazaz and it's a massive contribution to Pakistan and the world that you've made. And I, I'm sure you're uh, very modest about it, but everybody else will see what a fantastic contribution you've made. But what do you hope, what are your aspirations for its future? The whole ethos behind SAS was the different categories of people 
require different support from a social protection program. So if there is this university undergraduate student or the girl who will drop out of university unless she's supported, we had a SAS undergraduate scholarships. If a, if a widow wants a little bit of capital to have a, a grocery store in her house so that her children won't starve, she needs cash for work. If there is a fifth grade girl who would otherwise drop out of school, she needs the stipend to go to school. If the informal laborer who would sleep on the street needs a care service, the orphan needs to be in an orphanage. Now, in terms of the aspiration for the way forward, as you know, uh, I'm working on a handover paper. A handover paper is a tradition I, um, you know, I started it when I was back in the government in 2013. So uh, when I stepped down, I, I captured everything that I did and then, uh, you know, recommendations for the way forward. Currently, I'm writing that. And one chapter, the last chapter is the Vision 2047 for SAS. Now, why? Oh, wow. The Vision 2047 is because that is when Pakistan has its 100th anniversary. Centenary. Yeah, centenary. centenary. Big moment. And I believe, I genuinely believe that with the systems and processes that we have put in place, it is entirely possible to have social protection for all who need it. We are actually very close to it. And I genuinely believe that we can achieve that. So... Towards the end of the handover paper, I've made a case for what the goal is. And then I've explained why SRS is the best engine to pursue this goal. Yes, well, that is fantastic. And I think the vision of universal social protection by 2047 at the latest, by the the centenary of Pakistan, or, or obviously before, if possible, is wonderful. Sanya, the last thing I want to ask you about is, I know from talking to you over the last few years, and it comes through in this conversation now, that while you were overseeing Ezaz, you worked all the hours God sends. You were unbelievably hardworking, unbelievably committed to this program. How did you manage to keep yourself motivated? How did you look after yourself to keep driving with the, not just the moral fervor, but the quality and rigor of the program you designed? It was something really worth doing. It was an enormous privilege to be in a position where you're able to help people at this scale. I'd be working from six in the morning to 12 at night, you know, putting this new mechanism in place so that people could benefit. It's an enormous privilege. So just that realization that you have been blessed uh, with that role uh, to, uh, you know, to benefit people was truly humbling. And that was my motivation But it came at a huge personal cost because uh, my health suffered and I remained constantly stressed. And of course, chronic stress takes a toll on you. While you were doing it, though, you built quite a strong, a growing team of people around you who were very committed to this program and, and supported you through some of the tough times. So, you know, there are lots of good people in the government system and it depends on what the intention of the leadership is. And you can clearly find people who align with your your own work ethic. And I was yes. able to get some very good people uh, to work with me. It's a tremendous achievement. I'm really grateful for your honesty, your integrity, your clarity. I'm sure people will be absolutely fascinated by it. And for some reason, deep in my heart, I think that your successes with Ezaz and in Pakistan 
will find a way of building on your remarkable achievements and we will see Pakistan making further progress in the future. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much, Michael. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest Sanya Nishtar. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. And don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and to the rest of the team.